Welcome to the Pharmacy Inspection Podcast, where we discuss topics related to sterile and non-sterile compounding pharmacy in an effort to promote compliance and increase quality. The Pharmacy Inspection Podcast is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, delivering quality and meaningful conversations and discussions about our pharmacy industry and the critical role pharmacists play in our healthcare systems. Learn more at PharmacyPodcast.com. Please welcome your hosts, Brian Prince and Seth DePasquale. Hello to all of our compounding friends and colleagues, and welcome to the Pharmacy Inspection Podcast, where we discuss all things compounding in an effort to further the cause for both quality and safety in the compounding industry. You are listening to the first and original podcast series in our industry, and we'll continue to push our educational and knowledge-sharing agenda. You know, it's, it's hard to believe that it's already October of 2018, and we actually just celebrated our first full year of recording this podcast. Our original podcast was released on October 24th of 2017. So happy anniversary to all of our listeners. We're very proud to say that we've produced and released 32 podcast episodes in these past 12 months. And of course, we're not done yet. We've got a couple more episodes in the hopper for this year. So thank you to our audience. Thank you again for being part of our listenership. Just giving us your feedback. What's really has, what, what has really kept us going is your encouragement, seeing your emails and your responses and your questions come across through various social medias and even getting to meet some of you face to face at conferences and hearing your words of encouragement. So moving into this next year, we will continue to have an open source philosophy of sharing the industry's best knowledge with you. Thank you for joining us again this week. And let's jump into this week's episode with our guest, Kim Kiefer. Kim, thank you for joining us again on the Pharmacy Inspection Podcast. You've been a guest for us in the past, and always you bring a wealth of knowledge. And uh, about two weeks ago, I guess, I had the pleasure of seeing you speak in Oklahoma City at the ARL Quality Conference. And there was such a, a great presentation that you did. I was like, you know what? Our audience has got to hear that and at least some of those things. So, But before we get into that, if you would please reintroduce yourself to our audience and tell us, you know, a little about yourself, where you are now, how you got to this point. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you, Ryan. So um, I have worked in the compounding industry since for about the last um, 17 years, uh, 15 of which, well, or actually more than that, but it's, it's hard to say something that's closer to 20. Um, but the majority of that was working on the industry side, so working for the raw materials suppliers, doing clinical and technical support for compounding pharmacies, um, doing formulation support, physical chemistry support, calculation support, that type of thing. Um, and in that time, um, I became you know, pretty interested in the various reference materials and also a lot of the unique problems that compounders face. So... Kim, at, during your presentation in Oklahoma City, the, you, just, you had a lot to say, but if you would give us somewhat of a synopsis, like describe why the USP drug monograph should be referenced when formulating from bulk active pharmaceutical ingredients. Sure. So um, 
when they asked me to do this presentation, um, it was in response to a client that ARL was working, ARL being the sponsor, they were working with a client that had an out-of-spec result on some testing they had done. And um, Dr. Kupik called me and said, you know, Kim, we're going through this and we just don't understand what's happening here. And he gave me the whole rundown of the situation. And I thought to myself, you know what? I need to consult the USP. I'm driving, so let me do that and call you back. And of course, when I got home, I was able to look into the monographs because the monographs in the USP, which by the way, supersede the, all the chapters. So what's in the monograph matters to your formulation, whether you're a drug manufacturer or compounder. Um, so I was able to look and see, because in each monograph, um, there's different testing specifications, there's different acceptance criteria, there's different water contents, there's a different way in which the water contents are often applied. Um, so you have to take that all into consideration when you're doing your math to start your formulation process. Um, you know, with compounding, we are uh, we are not required under 795 and 797 to do a lot of end product or potency testing. Um, for sterile products, there is some testing that's required if you want to exceed certain expiration era beyond use dates. But in terms of potency, we're really not required to do that. So what we have to do, or what we should do, is all of these sort of in-process checks along the way and some easy ones to do or to make sure that you calculate correctly, that you weigh correctly, and that you do your variance calculations correctly. So those are just simple things you can do that will tell you or at least give you some reasonable assurance that what you say you're putting in per volume or per unit is, is what it's going to be. Um, but in order to do that math correctly, you need to make sure that you are taking into account all the specific variables of the chemical. And the only way to really see what those variables are is to look at the monograph. So if you, there are three different kinds of monographs in the USP. There are bulk substances monographs. So those monographs describe what a bulk substance should be, like in terms of how much water it can contain, how much heavy metal it can contain, um, if there's a loss on drying, and that, that would be uh, water and other uh, liquid type substances that are in trace amounts left over, um, how active it can be, and, and on and on and on. And every one of them are a little bit different. And sometimes we wanna make sure that we calculate off the water because when you get your material in, in your bottle, it's often hydrated at least somewhat um, from the derivation process. And so that water, or maybe it's a salt former and ester, those things actually dilute the activity of the base chemical. And for a lot of, in most cases, not all cases though, but in the majority of cases, we wanna make sure that we are accounting for those things that are diluting the activity so that we can give the activity that we want. But like I said, in some instances, we want the diluted form. So it really, and the only way to know that is to go in and look at the standards, which are contained in the monograph. So that's for bulk substances. But then we also have drug substance monographs or finished product monographs. Um, and these are monographs for, you know, most of the general things that we see, like lidocaine injection or ibuprofen tablets or you name it, the stuff that's out there on the market, like there's a monograph for it. Now, those finished product monographs don't give you things like a formula and they don't give you mixing instructions or beyond use dating, but they do give you the general backbone of the formulation. So like this is in water for injection, it has a pH of X, it has an isotonicity of this, it has an osmolarity of this, it has um, endotoxin levels and that sort of thing. So we'll give you that backbone so you can sort of formulate from that. Um, so that's the finished product monograph. And those are very important because 
we have acceptance ranges in there and acceptance ranges for potency in particular. And that is something to keep in mind. We always think, oh, 90 to 110%, that's what we use in compounding. And that's, that's often a default in a lot of these. However, it's not the case for all of them. Just like for the drug monographs, we also have these potency ranges that are all over the place. They're not always 90 to 110%. So we want to look and see what the monographs tell us because that's what we should be shooting for in our calculation. If it says in the finished product monograph and your compound is somewhat close to that finished monograph and that potency acceptance range is 95 to 105%, that's your range, not 90 to 110%. The, because remember, the monographs always supersede the chapters, right? So even if somewhere else and one of our compounding specific chapters, it might reference that 90 to 110%. Your monographs are really going to supersede that, so you want to make sure you look at it. Um, and then we have a third kind of monograph, and that's our compounding product monograph. So USP has been busily adding compounded product monographs in so that we have good information on testing those products, on beyond use states for those products, and mixing instructions, formulas, et cetera. So those compounding monographs actually have an acceptance range, they have a formula, they have mixing instructions, beyond use state information, and then all the analytical information to test that product, just like the other monographs. So those are there also. And again, if you're going to follow those formulas, obviously you would use the BEDs there, and you would, of course, use the acceptance range. So they give us a lot of information in those. So I think that that is really, really important to always keep in mind. First of all, whatever 797 and 795 tell you, those monographs come first. So you have to look at those first, and you will never um, have all the information about doing a calculation unless you look. And a lot of times there can be some very significant water contributions that can push you out of your acceptance range, or in certain cases, um, there is a large water content that actually needs to be calculated in. So the only way to know is to reference. And it's, it's, it's so much fun to find all of the different variations. And of course, it, it gives you a better and more reasonable assurance that you're going to have what you want at the end of your formulation and, and uh, production process if you have good math in the beginning. So finish the story where Dr. Kupiak called you um, and wanted more information and you, of course, had to consult. So tell, what was the, the, the actual situation there? So give us that real life example. So it was um, it was a atropine sulfate formulation, and I I unfortunately don't remember um, if it was an eye drop or an injection. Um, but the issue was is that they were looking for um, an acceptance range that was specific to that, and they were also looking for um, an activity range that was not adding up. And it was because of the way atropine sulfate is, is described and how the water content is calculated. So they did not account for the water content appropriately. Um, and had they looked at the monograph, that would have taken care of their issue. Um, and and it's, what's interesting about atropine sulfate is it's one of those things where the water content is calculated in and also instead of taken out, um, also, you're keeping the sulfate, even though the drug, the bulk, bulk substance monograph eliminates the water, the finished product keeps the water, um, and you're also not removing the salt form. And then in addition, depending on what you're making, whether it's um, a solution for injection or eye drops or if it's a tablet or an ointment or what whatnot, there's about 
four different drug monographs I can, or finished product monographs I can think of, they all have different acceptance range in terms of what's acceptable for potency. Um, Seth, would you like to interject at this point? Because I have nothing else to share. <laughs> yeah, give me one second. Just uh, so connecting. Kim, Kim, you actually used that act as an example in the like slide, slide yeah. 34 yeah. through 47. Mm -hmm. And um, Water MW. What is MW? What does that stand for? Water MW. Let me find it. Um, oh, molecular Mole weight. Molecular weight. As molecular weight, you say you did the, uh, a formulation of 18.01 divided by 694.8, and basically came out to 2.6%. Is that yeah, worthy I, of it? I was just demonstrating there that, so for this one, um, I was really just demonstrating there that if you were to go in and, and take the water out using the molecular weight because the molecule is, is a hydrate. So the molecule is displayed and listed with the water in it. And so um, if you just do a, a base or a, a molecular or a salt, base salt conversion where you just pull off the salt and the water, or you just pull off the water only and not the salt, it, that it, that accounts for like two point whatever percent. Now, if I go in and I actually use um, the C of A and look at the actual water content, because there's a range to the water content, you know, it might be a slightly different range, but it's going to be really close to that 2.6 or 2. Point whatever it was. So it was just, that was just like a side demonstration because the USP will, um, gives you a way to account for hydrates and salts by using the molecular weight. So instead of looking at the C of A, I think it's in, I think what I was conveying in the lecture is that, you know, you need to use your C of A and apply those specific, those specific values because that's going to get you closer to your base activity. Um, but you can do it just by taking off the molecule, you know, like here's the molecule, it weighs X. If I take off these parts of it, which weigh X, then I get this. And that's the way USP shows you to do it. But you can get a lot closer and more specific if you use the actual values from your C of A. So it's kind of like you have to use your C of A, but you have to look at the monograph too. So I was just demonstrating that as like an aside, like if you don't believe it this way, we'll look, it's right here. I don't know if it was really relevant, but I thought it was interesting at the time when I wrote the slide. <laughs> I, I like how in your presentation you have, you're, you're using a lot of examples that are like very narrow therapeutic index drugs, you know, like theophylline, yeah. levothyroxine, and lyrothyronine I see on here. So mm -hmm. you know, it's, I feel like pharmacists have a, have a good appreciation for, okay, I, I, I know that this is a, a narrow therapeutic index drug. I should probably look at and see what I'm doing and, and concentrate on this uh, because if I screw this up, this could be very detrimental. <laughs> so um, is there like outside of, you know, we, the uh, monographs, what, what specific chapter would you point to uh, that you would kind of tell pharmacists or, or, or text to check this out, make sure you're on point, at the very least with your, um, with your narrow, narrow therapeutic index drugs, um, 
but it, it would also give them a, an idea of like maybe what they should be looking at across the board for all their other drugs and compounds. Um, so unfortunately, you can't, I, I picked examples that were near and dear to people's hearts, like the levothyroxine, lyothyronine, those are problematic in a few ways because the lyothyronine is given as the, as the base and not as the sodium. So there's two parts. You have to worry about the base salt conversion and if there's water content and if there's an appreciable difference in the potency, you know, that you have to count for. And then the levothyroxine, which so often we give at the same time, is given as the salt and not the base. And it has a ton of water content usually that has to come off, plus you have to adjust for the so there's that. And then on top of it, you have to make an aliquot. And then, <laughs> and so there's all of these problems that arise. And we know that people have problems with those. We know that people don't, are not comfortable with those calculations. We know that they fail when they're tested a lot. I mean, I know this because I have helped just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people with those questions. So I use those specifically. But when you get into other things, like I also use benzoyl peroxide because that's not narrow therapeutic index, but it has a ton of water in it. And if you didn't know that, because you didn't look at your T of A or, your, or the monograph to see how it's given, um, you could seriously underdose it because it's going to have at least 20% water in it no matter what, because otherwise it'll explode. So that's another indication. So I think I tried to pick a handful of things that were just really odd because you never know what the monograph is going to say. So if you don't already know what the monograph says, you have to look at it. So I would say anytime you have a new drug or a new formulation that, that you're preparing to, and you haven't really reviewed that monograph, you should probably see just in case there's something funky because like in the case of atropine or, and in the case of um, morphine where it's a pentahydrate, you know, you give it as a pentahydrate. If you calculated that water off, you could, you know, overdose your patient possibly. So, I mean, you just don't, you don't really know until you look at it and we get into this well, morphine sulfate is morphine sulfate, and that's what we call it, but it's always a pentahydrate. But then there's lidocaine hydrochloride that's almost always a monohydrate, but we calculate the monohydrate off. So there's just always a different a different little caveat. And it's not always this narrow therapeutic index thing. Um, but aside from the monograph, um, USP 795 and like the first or second paragraph gives us a list of chapters that are really important and they say you should be familiar with these. So there is 1151, which is a pharmaceutical dosage form. And I think that one's really entertaining. Um, you probably could get by without reading it, but it gives you really specific information about what a the definition of a, of a dosage form and what, what constitutes an extended release versus a control release capsule and that sort of thing. There's also 1160, which is pharmaceutical calculations. And I don't really think that there is <clears throat> a single compounder out there that never has a calculation question. So there's a lot of really good information in there. Um, there's the quality assurance chapter, which is 1163. And that gives information about doing um, variance calculations, you know, so those are really weight variance calculations. And there's um, specific information about doing it for dry dosage forms and for like ointments and creams and things of that nature. And if you're not doing any sort of analytical laboratory testing, <clears throat> those weight variance calculations can be really, really helpful for doing a little QC of your own product. Um, there's also um, an, a, there's a whole chapter on labeling, which has 
kind of come into uh, focus recently. There was uh, a MedWatch letter that FDA shared with everybody a couple weeks ago um, that specifically called out several outsourcing facilities. I know it's outsourcing facilities, but um, 503A compounders do this same sort of stuff notoriously. Um, it's basically they were saying the, the packages were not labeled correctly because there is specific guidelines and they come from USP of how to label injectable products in terms of like the strength per volume of container and then later on in parentheses the, um, the strength per ml. So the industry standard and what's in chapter seven of USP is how to do that and compounders don't haven't traditionally done it that way they either do it backwards or they don't give both information whatever but in this letter they that FDA shared from MedWatch it essentially showed the packaging it told who the, the manufacturer was or the outsourcing facility was so we were specifically called out on that um, and the, the worry is is because we have injectable products labeled one way in industry and then these get into the market people will be confused because they're used to seeing them the other way um, and and I, I think it's really relevant because I think as compounders, we feel like we live in this bubble where we can just do things how we do things, but there's this whole world of manufacturing that is now closing in on us, um, reminding us that we are drug manufacturers, but we have some, some um, exemptions under 503A and 503B, whichever one we're operating under. Um, but labeling is not something that we have an exemption from. I mean, we do have to look at that and see if we can, we, sh we probably should incorporate that into our practice. And there's a bunch of others. I mean, if you have a question on anything, you can probably find a chapter that can give you some information on that. But those are the basic, there's like a, a list of them, the basic ones that you should know about as a compounder. Yeah, I think, I think 795, you know, does 795 mention all the ones that you just mentioned? Or yes, it does. It's okay. like in the first couple couple paragraphs of the chapter. Um, it says, "Here are all of the other things you should know about," and it gives a handful. And there's about ten of them. Nice. Well, you know, I, we, you and I offline, I think, have had that same the same conversation. It's it's crazy helpful. <laughs> <laughs> um, it really got me into looking more at the other chapters within the compendium and, mm -hmm. you know, keeping, keeping the compendium handy, basically on my phone. <laughs> so yeah, it's nice, right? <laughs> yeah. It's really nice actually. Um, Brian, do you have any other, any other questions for Kim? I, I mean, honestly, th this has been super helpful and Kim is such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this stuff. So, um, yeah, no additional questions. I was telling Kim actually that uh, on the way to dinner after she as she spoke, uh, then we as a group went to dinner later, and there was there was still a lot of conversation about the things that that she brought up, and it's just it, it's interesting at what what we think we know we don't know, right? That's kind of our favorite statement, is it? We don't know what we don't know, and I'm sure that this could go further and further, and I'd love to talk about it, but of course we're coming up on that timeline. So Kim, we'll give you this opportunity. What, any last pieces of advice or anything you just want to throw out there to, to our audience before you, before you part ways? Um, just that if you don't have the USP and it's not something that you use as a regular tool, I think people use Trissels and maybe they use Martindale's and um, possibly the Merck Index or they can just do Google searches or whatever. But like if it's not something that you're regularly using as uh, a reference, tool, 
I strongly recommend you get it and that you get the full compendium and not just the compounding compendium because it does not contain all of the monographs. Um, and just start using it because there is so much information and I think we've lived in this, like I mentioned before, this bubble of compounding where we just do what compounders do, but we really are drug manufacturers on whatever scale exercising our exemptions. Um, but the USP is dedicated to, just as much dedicated to compounding as it is to pharmaceutical manufacturing or commercial manufacturing. Um, so they're really working hard to supply good standards and good information and to not use it is just passing up just a really great, awesome tool that can really answer a lot of questions. So get it <laughs> if you don't have it. <laughs> Excellent. So really great advice, Kim. We, we, as always, we appreciate your, you're welcome on this show anytime because you certainly bring a, a lot of great pieces of, of information that, that we need to know. So thank you again for joining us. You're always welcome here and take care. I completely thank blew you. that outro. Didn't I? <laughs> no worries. Okay, oh, wow. I'll clean that up. <laughs> yeah, I'm after, I just had a long day. My, I've had Monday all day, and I am just smoked and done. So, anyways, thank you. Thank you, Kim, as always. Well, thank you. Fun.